Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and today we will discuss the triumphant reign of Abdul Malik's son, Walid. The caliphate he inherited was a well-tuned machine, its subjects thoroughly tamed by his father and the ruthless governors he had left in charge. Despite a slight shortage of narrations about the caliph, we shouldn't have any problems discussing his time in charge in episode 28, Walid bin Abdul Malik. You know, I never really paid much attention to Arab history when I was growing up. National curriculums focus on the stuff that build up and justify the state's narrative, and since Middle Eastern countries are all very recent constructs, the two I went to school in had nothing to say about the events we have been discussing together. That didn't mean I was totally oblivious, though. There were religious classes in Jordan where we learned a little about the Rashidun, or rightly guided caliphs, though as you can imagine the focus was not on history but on religious tradition. Apart from that, growing up in the region meant that Muawiyah and Yazid were both somewhat infamous figures, having been forever tainted by the latter's massacre of the Hashemites. When I started getting into this history, I learned a little bit more about the most famous caliphs, namely Abdul Malik, a son of his named Hisham, and the renowned Harun al-Rashid, whom we'll get to way, way down the line. These celebrated figures didn't succeed one another, of course, and it wasn't until I started reading our primary sources that I learned anything about the other caliphs who reigned in between. I'm glad we have finally progressed far enough in this podcast to where I am meeting you people rather than filling out impressions of men I had heard glorious things about most of my life. Walid ibn Abdul Malik is the first of these unremembered caliphs, and despite some impressive expansion during his reign, it won't be hard to see why the man himself was forgotten. As usual, we will begin with our subject's upbringing, so that we can derive our own sense of who he could have been when he became caliph. Wadid was born in the year 674, Muawiyah's heyday, when the siege of Constantinople was earning his Umayyad clan fame and legitimacy throughout the caliphate. Wadid probably had few memories of these glory days, Yazid's reign began when he was five, and the instability of the second fitna engulfed the Ummah shortly afterwards. Walid was among those besieged in Medina a few years later. He was only ten when his grandfather Marwan became caliph, and eleven when his father Abdul Malik assumed the same role. He's not mentioned often in the sources before his succession drama, except when we're told he was severely injured during Al-Ashtaq's rebellion against his kin in Damascus when he was fourteen. After that, his profile is much like other aspiring caliphs, only mentioned as a leader of raids against the Byzantines and a pilgrimage or two starting in the mid-90s, after Abdul Malik had secured his grip on the Ummah. In some ways, Walid ibn Abdul Malik is our luckiest caliph so far. His father had reinforced the power of the caliphate and his own position immensely before passing both on to al-Walid, a process we spent much of our last episode detailing. But on the other hand, he had big shoes to fill, and as we have already seen with Yazid and Muawiyah, it could be disastrous for the Ummah when the son fell well short of his father. So it's not like success was guaranteed or anything. We have a few different versions of Abdul Malik's deathbed scene, 
but the one most commonly reported has him surrounded by his sons, passing on his wisdom and final testament. He beseeched them to never let jealousy or enmity divide them, as infighting had brought down many kings before. Hear that? Kings. Our sources are pretty clear-eyed about what the Umayyads thought of themselves. Abdul Malik also advised his children to do right by al-Hajjaj and to heed his counsel, reminding them of all they owed the loyal governor of Iraq. This all took place in 705, when Walid was a little over 30 years old, and he became caliph the same day his father was buried. Al-Hajjaj is probably not a bad place to start. Literally, the first thing Al-Tabari reports after Al-Walid's succession was that the caliph received a letter from his governor of the east, requesting he be allowed to remove Al-Muhallab's sons from power in Khurasan. We barely mentioned the friction between Al-Hajjaj and Yazid ibn Muhallab last time, so let's flush it out a bit. Al-Hajjaj had repeatedly asked Abdul Malik to allow him to remove Yazid as governor of Khurasan, but all he got was the tepid consent of the caliph to replace him with his brother Mufaddal ibn Muhallab. Now we're not given any reason for this enmity. In some letters, Al-Hajjaj faulted their father for having supported Ibn Zubayr once upon a time, but that's a weak excuse. Al-Hajjaj never had a problem working with Muhallab and had personally picked him to govern Khurasan. But Al-Hajjaj was also in the habit of wielding absolute authority, and Al-Muhallab's sons likely felt their father's service justified considerable autonomy on their part. That's my bit of speculation at least, but whatever it was, Walid allowed Al-Hajjaj to finally remove all Muhallab's children from power, and the new governor he sent to Khurasan had orders to make sure they reported back to Al-Hajjaj and Wasit immediately. We'll pick up the story of Muhallab's children next episode, as what seems like an inane affair will turn out to be of pivotal consequence in a few years. Deserving of much more immediate attention is the man Al-Hajjaj sent to govern Khurasan, Qutayba bin Muslim. Over a long military career, this commander proved himself to be another of the Ummah's legendary generals, and his conquests spanned impressive distances and set records for the caliphate that would never again be matched. Al-Walid's whole reign in our sources is basically a long list of conquests by his many commanders, four of whom stand out for their achievements with Qutayba topping even that distinguished set. I've come up with a subjective ranking just to make things clear for us today, and although we won't go through them in order, we will start with the most impressive of the four, Qutayba. First, he took Bactria, then went south towards Kandahar, then north to Khwarezm, taking Bukhara and Samarkand, then he bested armies across Fergana and Transoxiana. If these names sound familiar, that's because we've been told that these regions and cities had been conquered multiple times already. That's what it's like with oral narrations sometimes. But when all was said and done, Qutayba had captured all of Tukharistan and the Fergana Valley. We're also told that Qutayba was the first to conquer the Turks, who according to those Arab narrations were a people who lived across the Murghab River in southeast Turkmenistan today. As if all these accomplishments weren't enough. Qutayba is credited with conquering the city of Kashgar in western China. While he may have reached this faraway land as part of his conquest of Fergana, we should be skeptical about the rest of it. Some narrations go so far as to say that Qutayba swore he would march on Chinese soil, earn its tribute, and end its dynasties. The emperor of China heard of his oath and requested a delegation of Arabs be sent to his capital so the two sides could negotiate. The story gets a little weird, but the Arab delegates basically confounded and impressed the emperor by dressing differently on each of the three days they attended his court. 
Seeing them in their war gear on the final day filled him with fear, and he asked them how he could possibly stop Qutayba from destroying his realm. They replied that their commander had sworn to earn his tribute, march on his soil, and end his dynasty, and that there was no way Qutayba could go back on such a promise. The emperor then cleverly suggested that they be given as much tribute as they could carry, a pot of earth from the capital for Qutayba to march on, and one of the many princes of China so he could fulfill his vow. Pleased with his inventiveness and respect, Qutayba accepted China's submission. Cool story, yeah? Qutayba's success was so amazing it spawned legends, literally legendary. But he was not the only gift that al-Hajjaj had for the Arab armies. He also hired the guy I rank as third most impressive of the conquerors during Walid's reign. Ever since Abdul Malik had made him his go-to guy, al-Hajjaj had become the most powerful figure in his tribe and city. Their men were some of his fiercest loyalists, and he often used the most capable among them to fill his command ranks. He had a particular fondness for this 15-year-old named Muhammad ibn Qasim, and after becoming his brother-in-law by wedding him to his sister, al-Hajjaj gave him a command of 6,000 horsemen with orders to raid Makran and Kerman in southeastern Iran. Those two areas had been strongholds of Muhalla power in Khurasan, and after he was done with them, other narrations say he went fighting pirates around Sindh or punishing its insolent king. But either way, before long, this teenage general was conquering cities all the way along the Indus River. His successes were surely enabled by great internal strife within the region, and his fortunate timing meant he faced little difficulty defeating armies from the coastal Dibal up to Multan in central Pakistan today. He also spent extravagantly from the riches he plundered to fuel his incessant war effort, even earning censure from the caliph, after which he began sending more tribute back to Damascus. Al-Tabari especially has a lot to say about these conquests, a strong indication that Al-Hajjaj, his men, and their triumphs all loomed large in the minds of their contemporaries and their descendants. Qutayba was the more energetic of the two eastern conquerors, and the lands he subdued rebelled frequently, so he was always coming and going. Three things stand out when we compare the conquests we're told about now to earlier ones. First is that we get mentions of mosques and barracks being constructed on the outskirts of some of the cities that the Arabs thought were of key importance in distant provinces, like Khwarezm, Fergana, Tukharistan, and Sindh. I think this was meant to dissuade the conquered peoples from trying to overthrow their new masters. Instead of trying to control them by founding new cities in these regions, the Arabs now just built small fortifications, which were either constantly or seasonally manned by modest garrisons. The second difference is that major wars ended with truces a lot more often now. Local rulers in these new lands around Khurasan entered into terms with the Arabs and sometimes even converted to Islam. Between the conversion of some of their nobles and the new Islamic infrastructure, the religion began to spread in the east, though nowhere near as fast as it had spread along the border of the Arabian desert. The third change was troop levies. It's not clear if this was limited to Qutayba's many armies or if Muhammad ibn Qasim engaged in it too, but we now hear about thousands of locals forced to fight alongside the Arabs. These reinforcements made the armies more effective and allowed their campaigns to last a lot longer. It generated considerable discontent among the Arabs, but that was nothing Qutayba couldn't handle. Before we move on from Khurasan, I just want to make sure I haven't given you the wrong impression here. If you heard investment, truces, locals fighting alongside the Arabs, and thought this Qutayba must have been a nice guy, then I have inadvertently misled you. Qutayba's reputation in the East is about as bloody as it gets, 
and both he and Muhammad ibn Qasim were effective because of how ruthless they were, much like the man who had hired them in the first place. Let's now go from these huge conquests in the East to equally impressive ones in the West. First, some background. You may recall that Abdul Malik had sent a Hassan ibn Nu'man along with 40,000 troops to retake the North African coast. While that all went really well, but it didn't end so great for the general himself, as his success provoked the ire of the caliph's brother, Abdul Aziz, who was in charge of Egypt back then and did not appreciate being upstaged on his own continent. In one of the many concessions Abdul Malik made in hopes of getting his brother to revoke his claim to succession, Hassan was replaced by a loyalist of Abdul Aziz named Musa ibn Nusayr. Hassan was recalled and Abdul Aziz stripped him of all his wealth in Egypt as he made his way back to Damascus. Perhaps because of his brutal victories, Hassan was despised by the region's Berbers, who still posed a danger to the Ummah despite having been driven away from the coast. Musa, now the governor of Ifriqiya, or Tunis, had a very different take on these local nomads. He must have seen lots of commonalities between the Berbers and the Ummah as he strove to get the two on the same side. This new attitude paid off as Musa took and held Tangiers and became the first Arab since Uqba bin Nafa to conquer all the way to the Atlantic. By that point, he had many Berbers fighting alongside him, and one of his close and capable Berber loyalists was about to earn his own place in history. Our sources relate the story quite casually. Musa's Mawla, Tariq ibn Ziyad, sailed to Spain with 12,000 mostly Berber men and killed Al-Idriq, or Roderick, king of the Spaniards, after defeating his massive armies in battle. Then Musa showed up with about 15,000 Arabs, and the two armies conquered most of the country in a year or two. I rank the pair of commanders second on my list of impressive conquerors during Al-Walid's reign, but a really close second at that. Sadly, the two suffered a similar fate to the man who came before them, and they were recalled to Damascus by the Caliph after their success had made others envious, a troubling trend which seems to have been unfortunately common during Al-Walid's reign. Our sources don't tell us very much about these Andalusian campaigns, because Al-Yaqubi, Al-Tabari, and Al-Mas'udi were all Iraqis, and the first two had relatively little exposure to this distant west of the Caliphate. There are much better sources for each of these faraway conquests that tell their stories in greater detail. In later ages, many cities had their own chroniclers, who poured over all the material available to them and put together comprehensive histories of their locales. Those accounts flesh out the events and characters in much more satisfying ways, giving us memorable scenes like the one which Tariq ibn Ziyad is most famous for. We're told that his men were so terrified at the sight of Roderick's massive Spanish army that he worried they might try to flee. To vanquish any cowardly notions from their minds, he set their boats on fire and said to them, The enemy is before you and the sea is behind you. Fight or die. Inspired by Tariq's bravery, they stood their ground and killed the Spanish king. There is one final military thrust to talk about before we can move on to other subjects, the one along the Byzantine frontier in northern Syria. It was by far the smallest of the four, really more of a string of victories as the Arabs didn't take any lands, but overcame numerous forts and towns instead. The Byzantines must have been doing really poorly because their armies just fell apart at every turn. Oral histories do exaggerate a lot, especially when it comes to war, part of why I skip so much of our martial material. But even accounting for all of that, it is clear that the Byzantines were not up to their old form. These attacks on Byzantine lands were almost all led by another of Abdul Malik's sons, Maslama, 
who, you guessed it, ranks fourth on my list. The new caliph had put his half-brother in charge of Mesopotamia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, replacing their uncle Muhammad ibn Marwan. This didn't ruffle as many feathers as you'd think. The new governor tied himself into Zafar's Adnani alliance by marrying the chief's daughter, and before too long his energetic leadership and repeated command of summer and winter raids endeared him to the armies under his charge. Before too long, Kansarin's armies were also placed under his disposal, effectively making Maslama responsible for the caliphate's entire northwestern border. Maslama was also the first to lead Arab armies into the Caucasus, which started another war between the caliphate and the Khazars in 710. By 714, he had taken the strategically located city of Dirbent, which the Arabs named the Gate of Gates, because it effectively separated the two powers. From that position, the Khazars were kept under control, though never truly conquered. With this, we have now rounded out the major conquests which took place during al-Walid's reign. There is no real point in trying to establish any chronological order for them, as it's not like they were centrally planned out or anything. The caliphate's, border just, the caliphate's borders just wouldn't stop growing, as its capable armies won victories on all three continents. The eastern ones started first, but even as the Arabs were exploring Spain, Qutayba was doubling back from Bactria to force the Zunbil of the Bulistan into paying tribute to the Ummah once again. But enough with all the warring. It is time we turn our attention back to Al-Walid in Damascus. He had stayed in the capital pretty much this whole time, except for leading the pilgrimage a couple years into his reign. Despite the fact that he didn't really have much to do with these conquests, they still earned the caliph lots of glory in the eyes of the Ummah, and of course, vast amounts of wealth. The way he used these riches endeared him to his people even further. Like his predecessors, he spent generously on impressive architectural projects, and two major ones he is remembered for in our sources were the monumental improvements he made to the mosques of Damascus and Medina, founding the first and renovating the second. Perhaps more impressive from our modern perspective was his expansion of the Ummah's social safety net. During his reign, anyone with a physical handicap, the blind, the injured, lepers, the destitute, all became entitled to a stipend from the treasury to help them get by. Hospitals were built to provide for their care, and nurses were sent to look after those who required sustained attention, all completely free of charge. This generous policy did not extend beyond Syria and was probably limited to Arab Muslims, but it is still impressive despite these restrictions. It's unfortunate that our sources don't dwell on it nor report its details. They do, however, praise it roundly as proof of the caliph's piety. If it was indeed piety, then it must have been one of Al-Walid's rare outbursts of such religious feeling. Al-Yaqubi tells us about the time the caliph led the pilgrimage, and it's sort of like an inarticulate, hot-headed version of Abdul Malik's Hajj experience. He chastised the people of Mecca and Medina and told them to keep their opinions to themselves. In the same breath, Al-Yaqubi mentions that Al-Walid fed all those who attended the Hajj in Mecca, but that he was also the first to address them while seated, a pithy expression of ambivalence at being ruled by the prodigal caliph. Other narrations we get about Walid's piety are dubious and difficult to endorse. There's one where he punished a guy attending his court for not having read the Qur'an, and one where he didn't punish a religious figure who ignored him while in Mecca. So even this praise of the caliph has a strong whiff of immature authoritarianism. Now, when I just said religious figure, I meant someone widely considered well-versed in the word of God and the life of his prophet, nothing more. 
I know I had previously stated that the earliest Muslim theologians were only born during Abdul Malik's reign, but there were already highly learned men who would serve as teachers for the upcoming religious classes. Much of what we know about the Prophet's ways comes from them, and a great many chains of narrations about the things Muhammad had said contained their names. In fact, the author responsible for the earliest biography of the Prophet, the Ibn Ishaq we mentioned in our second episode, was born one year before Al-Walid became Caliph. Since he was born and raised in Medina, he must have owed almost everything he knew to these respected elders. The man who didn't greet the Caliph that one time, Sa'id ibn Musayyib, was such an elder. Others include a son of Ibn Zubayr, a son of Abdullah ibn Umar, a son of Abdurrahman ibn Auf, and other prominent members of the generation following that of the Prophet's companions. One of them, Hassan al-Basri, would go on to become a colossal figure in Islam. Although he was born during the second caliph's reign, you'll find narrations claiming that the Prophet had blessed him as a baby, or an even nicer one, in which he is said to have drunk from the Prophet's water drug by mistake, only for the liquid within to turn out to be divine knowledge. Anyway, my point is that he and his contemporaries were all fated to become immensely important for the Ummah and its religious education. One especially noteworthy name among these is Ali ibn al-Husayn ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib. The 21-year-old Ali and his 4-year-old son were the only two male survivors of the massacre of the Hashemites at Karbala, which the son of Husayn only survived because he was too ill to take part. Although there's no question that he was the leader of his clan, he never entered politics, and the only role he played was as a religious educator, where his dedication earned him the lofty nickname Zainul Abidin, Ornament of the Pious or Best of the Worshippers. His death at the age of 54 during Walid's reign led some to accuse the caliph of poisoning him, but no such rumors are reported in our sources, so we can be relatively sure that they came at a later date. There's another dubious but widely reported narration about the pair, so indulge me for a second. The legendary classical poet Al-Akhtal stayed at the Umayyad court until he passed away a few years into Walid's reign, after which the caliph employed Al-Farazdaq. Side note, Al-Farazdaq and his rival Jarir were two contemporaries of Al-Akhtal and are widely regarded as gifted poets who fell just a smidgen short of his genius. Anyway, we are told that during the pilgrimage, the caliph and his posse ran into the devout Ali bin Hussein. Sensing that Al-Walid was annoyed at being in his presence, some of the caliph's entourage began to sort of snub the Hashemite. Al-Farazdaq wouldn't have any of it, and he delivered a powerful poem full of admiration for Ali's irreproachable virtue and lineage. After he was done, Walid bitterly asked Al-Farazdaq why he had never heard him praise an Umayyad quite so highly before, and received the bold reply, because I've never met such a man before, for which the poet was imprisoned for years. I already highlighted my doubts regarding this tale, and honestly I feel like it was constructed just to deliver that beautiful poem I've been telling you about. But there are other lessons that we can draw from this. There's a reminder of the continued impact of poetry on the Ummah, something you miss out on because I skip it all, and there's so much of it. It's also notable that we get these conflicting narratives whenever it comes to these two Qurayshi clans, the Umayyads and the Hashemites. Finally, the absence of both of these stories from the very earliest sources suggests a period of revisionist history-making at some point after their completion. For what it's worth, I think the Umayyads had no problem with the Hashemite Zainul Abidin because he did not get in their way. 
I believe that accounts that say otherwise were written later, by people who knew that the old rivalry between the Umayyads and the Hashemites was far from over. If evidence for Walid's piety is scant, then the same cannot be said about his generosity. Several narrations attest to his lavish spending, both on himself and the Ummah. On top of founding the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus and investing massively in the Prophet's Mosque in Medina, he is credited with building roads complete with way stations and water wells across the expanding caliphate. He was the first to gild the Kaaba, and he spent great sums on the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. The pattern is clear. Pretty much everything Al-Walid is remembered positively for in our sources had its roots in his prodigal spending, Syrian welfare system included. I'm going to leave out stuff about Al-Walid's succession until next time, and we've already covered everything else, so let's reflect on his effectiveness as leader of the Ummah before wrapping up. His death, like this announcement, came suddenly. He had only been in charge for a decade when he died of an illness at the age of 40 in 715 AD. The caliphate grew every year during his reign, and its armies extracted great amounts of wealth from all the peoples they subdued. This expansion of his domain is often cited as his greatest achievement, but if we're being honest about it, we should note that it was accomplished almost entirely by men empowered under his father, Abdul Malik. I really don't know how much credit we can attribute to the caliph for anything conquered in the east or west. Al-Hajjaj kept Iraq under control, and his loyalists conquered lands all the way up to India and China. Empowered by their closeness to Al-Hajjaj, they had the confidence to make their own calls, ones which yielded great rewards. Similarly, Musa's new approach in Africa also brought it great success. After securing an alliance between the Ummah and the Berbers, he conquered first Morocco, then Spain. Walid had nothing to do with these developments, and he's only mentioned when he summoned Musa and Tariq back to Damascus to strip them of their wealth. I don't know about you, but I found this caliph to be pretty middling. I mean, I'd complain, but since he ruled during what some describe as the zenith of Umayyad power, I know I don't really have anything major to complain about. It's clear what he did well. He listened to his father, the true architect of the caliphate Wadid ruled over. Even the expansionism he is often praised for wasn't his idea. It was his father's war machine and he just stayed out of its way. I suppose that's what I like the least about him, his total lack of creativity. I would have appreciated more initiative on the part of the leader of the Ummah, some identification of problems that needed resolving, or a vision of leadership to enact or inflict on his people, as the case may be. Without that, it's no mystery that he ultimately proved so forgettable. I'm partially impressed by his social safety net, but it seems more like an incidentally enlightened vanity project than a commitment to the welfare of his subjects. Al-Yaqubi reports that Al-Walid decreed that the caliph should never be referred to by name and would punish people for any oversights in that regard. Another grim first that is offered without much detail is that Al-Walid was the first caliph to execute people on hearsay, yet another indicator of authoritarianism. The Iraqi historians clearly don't have a lot of positive memories of the man, and their image of him contrasts somewhat sharply to the one you get in Syrian and Jordanian sources, who view him as a generous, wise, and pious patron. You know, it occurred to me as I was writing this that the contrast and the lack of initiative are related. The caliph was so unimaginative that he effectively behaved like the governor of Syria, and as the only governor without a boss and to receive money instead of sending it out to the capital, he could afford to do whatever he liked. I guess I can praise him for not having perverse or destructive inclinations, but I'm sure you'll agree that that's hardly praise. 
Anyway, don't make up your mind just yet. We still have a little bit more to say about Walid next time when we focus on his succession, and I have a feeling it might take your opinion of the man down a notch. To learn more, join me next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. <laughs>